Welcome to the Voices of War, a podcast with a simple vision, to bring to life the true costs of war through the voices of those who've lived it. I'm your host, Maz, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Before we start, please note that I recorded this episode with Andrew Quilty on the 9th of June. Since then, the situation in Afghanistan has changed significantly. You can follow updates from the ground via Andrew's Twitter page, at Andrew Quilty. Now let's get to the episode. My guest today is photojournalist Andrew Quilty. After completing high school, Andrew was given a camera by a late uncle, a photographer himself, which was the only item thieves failed to discover while he and two friends surfed one afternoon during a six-month trip around Australia in 2001. Andrew studied photography in Sydney and, before knowing where he wanted to take it, was offered work experience by a customer at the liquor store where he worked. And this uh, customer was also the photo editor at the Australian Financial Review newspaper at the time. There, Andrew fell in with some of Australia's preeminent photojournalists working upstairs at the Sydney Morning Herald. And it is uh, people there who, in many ways, shaped his worldview and future career. After finishing at Fairfax in 2010, Andrew freelanced from Sydney, then moved to New York City and eventually to Kabul, Afghanistan, after a two-week trip to photograph the Afghan cricket team turned into an odyssey now into its eighth year. Andrew has worked in all but a handful of Afghanistan's 34 provinces, photographed for most of the world's premier publications and won several accolades, including a World Press Photo Award, a Polk Award, several Picture of the Year International Awards and the Gold Walkley, Australian journalism's highest honour. More recently, Andrew has focused on the written word. His 18-month investigation into a CIA-led Afghan militia responsible for several massacres in 2019 for The Intercept was recently the recipient of an Overseas Press Club of America award. His most recent piece, published in in the April edition of The Monthly, is titled The Worst Form of Defence, New Revelations of Australian War Crimes in Afghanistan, which is an investigation into alleged war crimes by Australian Special Forces in Uruzgan. This, of course, is separate to the Burton report released in November last year. Andrew, it's an absolute pleasure to host you on the podcast. Thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me, Maz. You've had uh, quite an amazing journey, mate. And just reading your uh, background, uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, you've done quite a lot. Uh, but before we delve into some of your experiences, I'm keen to hear about this camera that your uncle gave you. What's the uh, story behind that? The camera was an old Nikon F3, which was once upon a time the the go-to camera for, for press photographers around the world. And I was given one by, uh, as you mentioned, uh, a late uncle who was a photographer in Sydney and uh, who, although having died uh, when I was uh, in the bloody years of high school, was someone, you know, who I really looked up to at, um, in my, in my formative years. And, um, and despite uh, the, the influence he had on me and, and the fact that I looked up to him a lot, my entry into photography happened quite by chance. Um, he had given me the camera, um, as you also mentioned, just before I took off around Australia for six months with a couple of mates, um, with, with no intention of, of using the camera as a you know a serious tool as anything other than a, a way of you know taking what what you 
I guess anyone would call happy snaps uh, documenting our, our trip very casually. Um, but halfway around Australia, I sort of realised that I was quite enjoying using it and and very um, very casually, you know, just documenting this trip, documenting my friends and um, the places we went, the people we met. And uh, soon before we arrived home back in Sydney, I thought, well, you know, maybe this is something I can... I can use as a, a creative tool and something I can also make a, you know, possibly make a career out of. So I, um, I enrolled in TAFE um, in Sydney at Ultimo and without really knowing where I wanted to take it, um, you know, I could just as easily have ended up working in fashion or commercial photography or sport or, or, you know, uh, conflict photography, I suppose. Um, but as you also mentioned, um, it was I was really shaped by the people I fell in with when I ended up at uh, at Fairfax in Sydney, and um, who I suppose took up took took the lead from uh, my uncle who'd given me the camera in the first place, and and started um, I guess uh, yeah changing my my view of the world and um, the kinds of things that I felt were worthwhile pointing a camera at. Hmm. What was it about photography as a or the camera as a tool that captured you? To be honest, it was really a, a practical decision um, based upon the fact that I, you know, having having left a um, a private boys' school in Sydney, where um, you know it was really kind of drilled into everyone that you had to go on to university and have a career and. Um, you know, reg- regardless of what your, um, your your passions or you know how how the way you viewed the world um, influenced the work you would go on to do, um, and so I, um, I mean, at, at school I was most interested in in visual art, in painting, and drawing, and these kinds of things, but I never really saw that as a viable option as a as a career for me. So. Um, you know, it was like this clash of, you know, the the two things or two of the things that I'd come away from school with. One, um, you know, wanting to pursue a, a create, you know, creativity of some kind, but on the other hand, um, th- that I needed to have a, you know, professional career. So I, I sort of viewed the camera as a, a balance between these two uh, elements. Um, and one which I could, with which I could both be creative and also potentially have a uh, make a profession, make a career out of. Yeah, because photography in particular is, uh, as you say, it's a creative uh, profession, but it's one that strikes me particularly important when we start looking at conflict and taking images of conflict, because you know the old adage, a picture tells a thousand words. Uh, there's, there, there, I think it has a special relationship with, with you know. Uh, photojournalists and and observing almost as though you know kind of the fly on the wall idea you're capturing a moment in time and oftentimes it's void of other context right you're seeing a picture uh, and you know it's again up to the individual to interpret what's happening there but generally you're capturing a very very human moment and if I just think back to your you've got a website that I'll that I'll put a link to in the show notes as well um, but a lot of the photos you've taken well at least on the website that you put up are photos of very very human moments in this case mostly from Afghanistan if I'm right which we'll get to anyway uh, but ha- 
how do you how do you pick moments in general? Like, what is it? What drives you to decide? Okay, there's a there's a, there's a there's a frame that I want to take. There's, how do you see what you want to take a photo of? I think at this point, after carrying a camera around for fifteen years or more, it 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 really becomes instinctive, like like any craft, I suppose. Um, so I, I have to sort of <laughs> dig deep to to um, try and discern uh, what makes my instinct tick. But um, I think you know, f- first and foremost, for photographers, it's it's about light. So I will. And let's say something very specific that I uh, want or need to photograph. I won't go out in the middle of the day. I'll ideally, you know, work between, you know, like an hour before sunrise to two hours after sunrise, and then, uh, you know, a couple of hours before sunset to an hour after sunset. Uh, between those hours, I find it incredibly difficult to get inspired about what I'm pointing the camera at. Right. There are often Obviously, um, scenarios where I don't have the luxury to to uh, choose when to photograph, um, but I, I suppose that's that comes to a second element, which um, uh, which, which determines what I'm drawn to, and that's the the subject matter, obviously. So I think um, I think uh, Photography often comes down to depicting uh, like a human connection of some kind. So that often that often uh, means you're, you're photographing two or more people having some kind of interaction, um, whether whether it's um, one of adversity or enmity or one of love and affection. You know, it's these kind of emotions that are. That a that a camera is very very good at, at, at depicting um, in a way that um, other mediums are not. Hmm. So um, I mean these are the these are the kinds of things I look for. And then um, beyond that, I think um, you know as you mentioned, you can take a photograph of a moment in time which is devoid of the context outside the the boundaries of the frame that you've chosen to focus on. And that is also really important to me. Um, and that's something I've learned since being in Afghanistan. Um, and I was having this conversation the other day and hopefully I can articulate better now than I did then. But I, I think, for example, now the, the circumstances under which one can take a photograph, uh, depending on, for example, in a place like Afghanistan, who controls a certain area at a certain time, although it may change absolutely nothing uh, figuratively in a photograph, mm. it changes everything in the uh, like external context. So if I'm photographing uh, a little boy, a little girl running down the street in a rural district in uh, you know, a province outside Kabul, mm-hmm. if, if that little boy and that little girl running down a street in a village controlled by the government, it means one thing. And if they're doing the same thing in that village at another time when it's controlled by the Taliban, that means something else altogether. So these are the kinds of things that a photograph alone cannot depict Hmm. and which needs to be bolstered by, you know, a caption or, um, you know, some kind of context, uh, you know, in whatever medium 
one chooses. Mm. No, absolutely, and I think that's the important part of the narrative that surrounds the photo. But 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 I think you there's an interesting point you made about the raw emotion and the and the kind of almost extreme emotions of love, joy, happiness, or you know fear, anger, or whatever mm. whatever it might be. You know those emotions are are the same regardless of who you're taking a photo of or where. Uh, and I think that's a that to me anyway. You know whether you're taking photos of uh, uh, you know quote unquote the enemy or of you know the Taliban or of soldiers or of children the emotion on people's faces we all we all display the same emotions uh, we all feel the same emotions and I think the, the, the photo captures this that so powerfully uh, and can also then tell that human story perhaps better than other mediums or at least that's 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 why I find it which I, which is why which is why I'm absolutely fascinated by photojournalists in general um, because especially because <laughs> I mean, the title says it, you know, you are a journalist, you're trying to, uh, you're, you're part of the fourth estate to, you know, speak truth to power and, and uh, bring to light things that are otherwise left unseen, uh, which will kind of take us to where uh, I hope most of the conversation uh, will reside, and that's in Afghanistan. But before we get there, you went to New York, right? And then you moved to Kabul. What, what did you do in New York? What sort of work were you doing there? Good question. I, um, I had this really... Um bizarre idea now that I look back at it that um, <laughs> having worked in Australia worked in Sydney um, for primarily Australian publications and then having gone freelance and and um, expanding my horizons a little bit to outside Australia and starting to work for um, these, you know these big American publications I thought well if these are the publications I want to work for, then I have to go to where they're based and and um, and be close to them geographically. Um, of course, that is a completely ridiculous idea because <laughs> although the, their offices might be um, in New York or Washington DC, the stories that they're reporting are you know happening all over the world. Mm, um, mm. You know, even even in Australia. Mm. So um, I yeah, I had this. Um, this strange notion that, that that's what I needed to do, and, and in a way, I um, uh, it helped me to an extent in that I was able to you know, meet some of the the editors and so on that I um, would go on to work with in the future, which is important, unfortunately, in in this industry. You know, you need mm. to go and uh, kiss the ring, so to mm. speak. Um, I think that's important and, in every industry, right? Um, <laughs> I, I guess you're right. Yeah, but, but particularly so, I think for as a fre- as a freelancer, where you're, oh, of course, um, yeah, 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 yeah. You don't have, yeah, you don't work for anyone. You know. Yeah, if you, if you don't um, if you don't know the editors, then they're not going to call you when they need someone in Afghanistan or where, wherever it is. So, mm, of course. Uh, so I the, the work I was doing to answer your question was, I mean, I was doing pretty pretty mundane work. You know, any. Um, any job that had come along, like, you know, photographing a businessman for the New York Times' business pages. I remember the first time that happened and I was, you know, overjoyed <laughs> to a couple of, you know, I had a couple of interesting assignments. Um, the, 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 most, um, the most interesting was probably photographing Hurricane Sandy for um, uh, Time magazine, which, which you might remember, I think it was 2012. Mm-hmm. And, you know, um, big... Uh, Hurricane came up the the east coast and um, turned turned uh, New York City dark and but then yeah it was it didn't take long or it, it didn't I didn't have to spend too much time in in Afghanistan to realise that this was the place that uh, or a, a place that 
um, I found far more fulfilling and invigorating um, as, a, as a photographer. Mm. Because then you, I guess that's what you got an assignment. Is that, I mean, can you just explain how these assignments, I mean, t- someone tells you, I want a photo of XYZ and you go and find it. And, and is that what happened with the Afghan cricket team? That's how it happens ideally, but in reality, <laughs> mm. more often than not, you will come up with a, an idea and um, particularly if you uh, don't have a lot of experience or if you don't um, have good connections, you will go and you know, report and or photograph that, um, that topic, write the story, uh, produce the photograph, and then pitch the idea um, once it's all done and dusted rather than an an editor having to take a risk and pay your expenses and take on the liability of you traveling to a place like Afghanistan. It's much easier for them to sign on to a story that's already been produced. So that's what we did. We, um, uh, my, my friend at the time, Claire and I um, traveled to Kabul and we, you know, off her own bat and we spent a couple of weeks working on this story, traveling around with the cricket team before they, um, or as they were training for their first appearance in a World Cup, which was going to happen in Australia the next year in 2014. And we ended up uh, selling the, the story to um, the Good Weekend magazine in, um, in Australia. Right. Okay. Well, there you go. And, and I guess that's where it all started, or your Afghan uh, odyssey started, I guess. Uh, did you, after those two weeks, uh, you finished that assignment, you then decided to stay from there on in? Pretty much. It, it happened slowly. I mean, like Claire and I uh, kept extending our visas for, uh, you know, months at a time until um, the, the three-month limit expired and we had to leave. And, uh, yeah, by the end of that three months, I was, I was pretty set on staying. So I went back to New York, packed up my things, then back to Sydney and, you know, collected a few belonging, belongings and, and headed back and, um, and set up shop in, in Kabul. Hmm. And, and why Afghanistan? What, 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 what captured you about Afghanistan? I think for the first time I was working in a place where I felt photography meant something to me um, or meant more to me than it had before, whereas previously it had been about making aesthetically beautiful photographs that didn't necessarily mean a lot. In Afghanistan, those two uh, those two notions came together, and it and it was um, it just uh, I was I, I found meaning in this medium that I'd that I'd developed a, a passion for over the, the previous ten years or so, um, and then on top of that, I also quite enjoyed the you know I, I made some friends here and despite some of the limitations on you know social life here I, I quite like the lifestyle I I found the work exciting and and uh, seriously challenging and I felt that it was a, an important story that although the the wind had gone out of the sails, both of the, the international military effort and the, um, the, the international community's interest more generally in the country. I felt like I was in the middle of this, um, this really important global story that would be you know, looked at and read about for decades and centuries to come. And 
the fact that I was living in the middle of it and could step out my my front gate and be photographing this world was you know it was quite it was it was really exciting and um and yeah just uh, I felt invigorated by the medium of photography um in a way that I hadn't been previously mm. And that was in 20, 2013 or fourteen that you, I guess, moved there. And, and, and end of yeah, I came for the first time end of twenty thirteen and moved early fourteen. Right. I mean, and, and I guess the the war, so to speak, uh, was well and truly still mm-hmm. going on. It was in its what you know thirteenth year by that stage. What was your view from the ground like? What, what did you go and take photos of? Because because I, I I'm conscious of what your subsequent work in particularly what your written word, uh, what you cover. But how you know what what did you start taking photos of initially? Before I come here, all I really knew of Afghanistan, or the the majority of what I knew of Afghanistan, was these in terms of imagery anyway. Were these scenes of foreign soldiers in you know wearing camouflage? military fatigues, walking through dusty alleyways or, or through wheat fields in rural areas, uh, l- looking out of place amid, you know, the, the Afghans that they were working and, and fighting amongst. But I knew very little of, the, of those Afghans themselves. Mm. And I think that was mostly because of the difficulty of working in a place like Afghanistan for outsiders meant that most foreigners, most foreign reporters and photographers were embedding, as we say, with uh, the foreign military forces, whether it be the Americans or the Australians or Brits or whoever it was. That was that was the the window the window into Afghanistan that most of us consumers of news and media were viewing the country through. And so we weren't really seeing Afghanistan at all. We were seeing the, you know, the, the foreign intervention in it. And um, you know, I, I, I'm I'm conscious that it's easy for me to say that now because that kind of window is it doesn't really exist, and it didn't really exist after I arrived here in thirteen fourteen. And I'm sure that if I had been working in the you know the first decade of, of the century. I too probably would have been doing those kinds of, of embeds and, and depicting the country um, through that, through that lens. So, but, but regardless, um, that's how I had um, that was the picture I had of the country. And so when I came here and and discovered that the foreign presence was you know really on the wane and and that the soldiers who the foreign soldiers who were still here weren't really interested in sharing their experiences because the war had sort of gone gone south and the um, the, the foreign governments and militaries were not so interested in in uh, opening up to journalists and uh, opening up the, the doors to the journalists to, to show them what they were doing anymore as they had been when they were trying to gain support for the war in the in the earlier years that not being an option for me, I, it, it happened quite naturally that I, I turned towards the, the Afghans themselves, those people who were living through the war, um, and the Afghan soldiers and, and defence forces themselves. Mm. Mm. That's uh, uh, and I think that's really where my interest lies as well. I mean, this is I mean the title of the podcast and the voices of war, and I think 
you and I spoke about this briefly uh, previously. It's one of the things we don't necessarily discuss uh, is the view of the people on the ground who are paying the price. Uh, and I think you, you hit the nail on the head by saying that we had embeds initially and the news reports that we see back at home or in our in our homes, I'm speaking broadly as the coalition, the different countries is from the kind of tightly controlled oftentimes media that were part of the embedded or embedded with the with the forces. Now what what was the story that you saw with the Afghan people? Or how different was the story that you saw uh, through your lens that they lived to the story that we lived back home? I think to begin with, um, when I first arrived, I was, I was viewing everything in Afghanistan as a threat, everything and every person as a potential threat. And I think that's probably something that most international soldiers um, and, and military forces can, can appreciate. I think um, as, I've, as I've since come to notice, the difference here between uh, me as a civilian you know, journalist or photographer in civilian clothes to me embedded with, you know, as I have been on just a couple of occasions with international forces, um, you know, heavily armed and, and in uniform, um, th- there's a huge discrepancy um, between, how, uh, between how I perceive I'm viewed as mm-hmm. one and the other. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, not that I have personally been in uniform myself, but even when I'm around people in uniform, I, I feel um, that the the eyes on me and those around me have a very um, a very different tone mm. um, to those. Well, you're part of that frame, right? You're part of that particular militarized frame that people are seeing. Exactly, and it's and it's. Um, you know, it's it's not only now. I think I, I was talking to um, uh, some people from Wardak province, which is uh, adjoins Kabul, um, and have seen you know a, a huge amount of fighting in the, in the last twenty years, um, just last week. And they were telling me about the first time they encountered Americans in uh, probably early two thousand and two, and they were saying they felt they were curious about them, but they were also very wary and very suspicious. And so, it's, I mean, it's interesting that I think that's still, I mean, that's probably held true ever since the, the Soviets came in, the, in, in 79 um, mm. through to today. That said, I'm, I'm astounded by the fact that given what, you know, almost every Afghan has experienced in the last 40 years, um, which has been um, at the hands of foreign uh, military forces, which I think it's probably fair to say most people have a a less less than positive view or, or memory of those forces. Um, you know, of course, there are a lot of exceptions and um, at both ends of the spectrum. But I think um, my point was that it, despite that, despite the um, view that m- the majority of Afghans would hold foreign uh, military forces and by extension foreigners in general the the way i'm received by 99 out of 100 afghans is always astounds me i'm you know it's um it's very rare that i'll meet anyone in the street for you know in passing or for for a conversation where i'm not you know invited back to the house for tea or you know um involved in a 
in a conversation about Australia or you know wherever it is they're from. It's a it's a, an incredibly warm, strangely welcoming environment and 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 culture, um, in spite of of everything that um, outsiders have have bought them. You know, good, good and bad. Yeah, that's interesting. Do you speak any of the language? Do you speak Pushtu at all? Or look, I'd, um, I, I, I was hoping you wouldn't ask that. No, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I can I'm, cut that out. <laughs> no, I, 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 I hate to say that I'm, I'm extremely ashamed of the the lack of um, language that I've picked up. I think um, my excuse is that. Um, for the first few years that I was here, I always thought I was leaving within six months or so. So I mm. never committed to learning the language. And then a couple of, um, and then when I finally did, after three or four years being here, something always happened once I did start, um, once I started lessons seriously. I think the first time, um, the first time I was about 10 lessons in and, and my uh, house burnt down. Um, okay. Uh, just from a, just from a, a, a domestic accident. And um, and then the second time, I uh, oh, my my Dari teacher, which uh, Dari is the uh, sort of the official language here, um, mm-hmm. one of the two major ones, Dari and Pashto. Um, but my my Dari teacher was attacked by my dog. Okay. Um, and, and then um, oh, and then the third time, after my Dari teacher had recovered, um, my my house. We were told ended up on a um, a list of ISIS targets. So we uh, we had to leave the house the next day, and we I just once again I sort of lost uh, lost momentum, and I never well, really regained. Well, I'm not surprised, mate, given the uh, <laughs> the nature of you know events that come with you wanting to learn the language. <laughs> I'm not surprised by you. By, by you. <laughs> But you've stopped uh, stopped trying, but I don't, I don't. But but it's still very. I still find it. So I guess you interact with the locals uh, mainly through an interpreter. Is that accurate? Or? Um, it depends. I mean, um, on a day to day basis, I, you know, I can certainly get by in in Kabul. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I'm working and when I really need to know what people are telling me, yes, I'll I'll always be working with an interpreter. And working with an interpreter is is not just to enable me to have. Conversations with people and to explain what I'm doing and ask um, about their stories, but also to navigate local environments. Um, and, and I'll always work with someone where possible from the specific um, area that I'm working in, whether you know from province to province or even um, to different areas in Kabul. Yeah, that's uh, I like to I like to term local environments because I think if I'm correct in in assessing what you mean there is that it varies greatly. Uh, and I think this is one of the great downfalls that are going to be studied for decades to come, like you kind of alluded to before, about our great misunderstanding of Afghanistan uh, and that we kind of had these overarching narratives of, you know, anybody that's against us is Taliban and everyone that's for us is, you know, part of the uh, government uh, and so on. How do you view those that kind of black and white narrative now that you've been there for so long, how accurately does it represent what you see on the ground? Something I've realised and, you know, people will, will wonder why I'm only realising this now, 
but something I've realised increasingly in recent years is the extent to which the the foreign military forces and um, and to an extent the their um, their partners in in Afghanistan, but but primarily the the foreign military forces early on in the war, you know, created an enemy that. It's not that it didn't exist, but it had certainly gone to ground and, and was only lurking latently at the time in the in the sort of mid two thousands. And you know, I think um, I, I'm not sure how much you want to get into it, but um, you know, to look at the example of the Australian Special Forces in Aruzgan, I think there's a, an argument to be made that a, a lot of those who ended up Fighting not only the Australians but the the government that they were supporting, and and then um, you know who have gone on to continue fighting the government um, now that that's uh, they're the only soldiers they uh, the only um, opponents they have to fight uh, are doing so because they were they were drawn to do so uh, because of the treatment they received at the hands of. You know, for example, the, some of the Australian Special Forces soldiers in Aruzgan. And, and I think, you know, I just hear that over and over again. Um, you know, speaking of that, that's the people I was referring to in, in Wardak province recently. And I'm actually uh, working on a story about this now about um, a family who didn't have any specific allegiance to, to the government or the Taliban, but who had, you know, who in the, in the very, Final years of the war in, in 2019 had a, um, a horrific experience with uh, some American forces supported by uh, Afghan Afghan partners, and um, and that you know that that turned them against the, I mean that gave them reason to support the Taliban, uh, whereas previously. They were uh, relatively agnostic about who who to support. They just sort of they were happy to live their lives out out in the villages, um, and um, but that all changed once they were given reason to or given a motive to to pick a side. So I think, um, and you know, look, the same the same can be said for people who have been uh, victims of of Taliban violence as well, for sure. But I think it. Um, I think uh, picking the or, or defining the Taliban at large or en masse as a um, as the enemy is you know it's it's a very simplistic way of looking at things and uh, and I think um, a lot of those that do so are ignoring the fact that we as as um, international interlopers um, created a lot of them. Mm. How, how much do, did we or do we understand the local context, the local dynamics that occurred there? And I ask this as somebody who's been there who, uh, you know, while I sleep easy at night, certainly played my part in a small way in contributing to some of these narratives and interpretations of those. How well do you think we actually understand Afghanistan? Not, not in the slightest. I mean, I've been here nearly eight years and I I mean the longer I stay here the more I realize how little I understand and you know I'm talking about you know a broad understanding whereas the reality is 
you know, every village here has different dynamics which need to be understood before getting involved in them. I can't remember. I think I think it was um, David Petraeus who commanded um, international forces here uh, after McChrystal, I think, in 2011 and 12, who said in the last couple of years that um, you know if it, if we'd had the time again following 9/11, the best thing to have done would have been to spend a year studying Afghanistan before setting uh, the first boot on the ground. And I, I imagine um, had that been done, things would have played out, you know, it could potentially have played out very differently. I think, I think the foreign forces would have chosen their allies very differently. That was, that was another, another reason for, um, uh, you know, what, what fueled the, what we know as the Taliban. That being the fact that the, um, the international forces who, who um, k- kicked off the war in, in late 2001, you know, quite logically at the time, sided with the the foes of the um, group that they were trying to oust from power. Most of whom happened to be, you know, members of the, you know, either the the Tajik or the Hazara or the Uzbek Northern Northern Alliance um, pe- people from the, the, those um, ethnic minorities, anyway. And so f- from that moment on, I think you know the enmity between. Uh, the Taliban of the 90s and that um, the, the northern the, the, the northern uh, ethnic minorities was compounded. Uh, so not only were the those northern alliance uh, leaders or warlords or whatever you want to call them um, empowered militarily, they were also given the you know high high ranking positions in the government or in the Ministry of Defence or Ministry of the Interior, and it's, it's widely thought amongst the, the the communities that that suffered the most under them and you know these are primarily communities living in majority uh, pastoral areas in the the east and and the south at least in in the early years of the war but didn't see any of the benefits that were coming to the the constituencies of these uh, north, former northern alliance leaders and so that you know that stoked the that enmity, and then um, you know, on top of that, you had the, uh, the the foreign forces, primarily Americans and Brits, in the early years, uh, allied with the with the Northern Alliance leaders, their militias and their commanders, and um, you know, carrying out in a lot of cases like retribution for for what had happened in the in the years before the the Americans and the Brits came to Afghanistan, and so it just it just compounded these. These old, um, you know, tribal, ethnic, you know, inter-community beefs that that already existed, and and served to you know further sort of divide the population. I was just going to say on that point, I think the 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 the, the fact that we became an actor in that kind of ecosystem—it's a term that I've kind of used throughout. Mm-hmm. Uh, other episodes as well, because I think that you know it's alive. It's a, it's a, it's it's something that's not fixed. Uh, it's not black and white. It's full of color. It's anything but simple. We came in as, I guess, uh, uh, another actor, and we empowered some of those local actors uh, whilst we suppressed others, and we contributed to those dynamics. Uh, and I guess that's the point. Uh, uh, um, I'm thinking you're making as well. And 
the the outcomes of inquiries and investigations into alleged war crimes and so on, uh, you know, they will tell their story. Uh, but I guess the the power of narrative again is what's important here. Uh, while I certainly don't intend to comment on the investigations, but the narratives of alleged war crimes is perhaps sufficient, whether they're true or not. It's almost irrelevant. Mm-hmm. They carry power in themselves, right? So, how are people in Afghanistan perceiving? Australians or more broadly uh, coalition forces in general uh, after these allegations have come out? You might be surprised to hear that the when the allegations from the Brereton report were published, there wasn't a huge reaction here in Afghanistan. I think, um, you know, beyond those who were immediately affected, you know, so much has happened before and since those alleged crimes took place that, you know, people have moved on, people have experienced traumatic events. Since then, there's, you know, uh, dozens and dozens of fighters on both sides dying each day, a day in, day out at the moment. And it's just, um, I mean, I don't think people you know, have the, the either the ability or the willingness to, you know, g- go back and, and dredge up these old um these old memories. I think it's it's obviously more acute for those who experience them themselves. But I think, like more generally, it, it, it it's just more grist for the mill for those who argue that the the, the foreign military intervention here w- was at least to a degree responsible for inflaming or um, you know fueling the the insurgency, which. You know, it didn't exist. I mean, it wasn't an insurgency for the first couple of years. People, you know, even the the Talibs, they they went to ground, or they, you know, they, you know, some of them, yes, for sure, uh, went back to Pakistan to regroup and and probably started, you know, plotting things fairly soon after they they fled. But for for most people, I think it was, it, you know, it took a spark for them to to pick up a weapon again, or for the first time. And, uh, and and I just think there were there were so many sparks nationwide that um, that the insurgency was was inevitable, um, mm. you know, come sort of two thousand six, two thousand seven. Mm. And I guess the the quote unquote collateral damage that people have experienced, or they became collateral damage, I guess, in this war. Uh, and I think uh, you won the Gold Walkley Award for a particular photo that is very much a result of quote unquote collateral damage or an accident. Yeah, not even mm-hmm. not even planned a collateral damage that mm-hmm. it was part of an estimate and approved and so on, uh, which in itself mm-hmm. is 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 uh, is crazy and it's going to be a, a discussion I'll have later with with some ethicists on the on this very point. Uh, but mm-hmm. maybe you can tell us a little bit about that. Firstly, about that photo, and again, I'll I'll share a link uh, to it the notes but what was the photo and uh tell us tell us how you got to actually take that picture so i think the photo you're referring to is of the uh the the man who's lying dead on a operating table in a in a hospital yes Yes. Uh, um yeah the the hospital is in uh kunduz which is city in the north of afghanistan it was it was under the auspice of um uh, American and German troops for the for the most part throughout um, uh, throughout the war, and there was a hospital there that was run by Medicine Sans Frontieres. It had been running for five or six years at the time, 
And it was it was the biggest hospital in northern Afghanistan for patients of, of war trauma. In September 2015, the Taliban overran uh, Kunduz city, which is a, a provincial capital of the same province. And it was the first time the Taliban had overrun a provincial capital since they were ousted from power in, in 20, uh, 2001. So it was a big, um, it was a, a, a huge event in the context of the war. It was a big, um, it was a big, uh, you know, news event for, for journalists. And it became even uh, bigger when about a week into the, to the battle to retake Kunduz City, um, which was being fought by some American special forces along with um, Afghan commandos and special forces. And um, yeah, about a week into that, um, while a, an American Green Beret team were uh, trying to fight their way out from a, a, a police, um, the, the police headquarters in the middle of the city, a, an airstrike was called on a, a building uh, a few hundred meters away, but um, for various reasons, and you know, I don't think that the whole story is, is entirely clear yet, the AC-130, which you'll know, Maz, is, a, um, is basically a, a cargo aircraft um, refitted or re-kitted out to be a, a really fearsome uh, close air support aircraft with um, a number of different uh, uh, weapons, including cannons and um, and a, a Gatling gun. So it's it's one of the um, most feared aircraft, um, certainly by the Taliban in Afghanistan, primarily because they associate it with there being soldiers, um, foreign soldiers, on the ground in close proximity to that aircraft. But in any case, this the this AC-130 instead of striking this supposed target. Hit a hit the Medicines on Frontiers hospital, which was full of patients at the time. The the hospital was at capacity because of all the fighting that had been going on in and around the city. And when it was struck by you know several hundred rounds of, of various shapes and sizes, by the end of the I think it was an an hour or more, maybe it was half an hour, an hour barrage of, of, um, of fire, 43 patients, hospital staff and, and patient carers were killed. And um, uh, it, it's, um, I mean, I, th I think there were probably a dozen staff who were killed. Uh, the, the majority of the rest of the victims were patients in the hospital. And one of the victims was this man who I, who I found out about later on who had been uh, shot in the leg during the week as he was going to check on his place of work in the city and he got caught in the middle of some crossfire, ended up in the hospital. He'd had one operation to to remove the, the round in his in his thigh and he he was going in for his second operation to uh, stitch up the wound and he would have made a you know full recovery and probably been released in a couple of days. But it was um, while uh, soon after he'd gone under general anaesthetic that the uh, AC-130 started firing on the compound, and I, I later um, connected with some of the surgeons who were operating on him at the time, as well as the the family of the man who um, who was fatally wounded by shrap 
shrapnel from from some of the rounds from the AC-130, and who um, who never, you know, obviously never woke up from his anesthesia. And this photo, yeah, depicted him basically lying on the on the operating table where he'd he'd been um, uh, put under anaesthetic, and where where the doctors and surgeons had to eventually um, abandon him on the operating table because he was a you know fully fully grown, um, fully anaesthetized male who, under the circumstances, they just couldn't um, they couldn't carry out um, of the room. Nor were they sure that they'd be able to get him to safety if they could. Um, they were, you know, they were just as likely to be to be killed as as he was. But yeah, so, um, basically, uh, to, to get to capture that photo, I um, I was in I was in Kabul when it happened, and you know, news started filtering out um, that night about what had happened, and it became became clearer the next morning. And I'd I'd already started making um, attempts to get to Kunduz with the Afghan military and waking up to that news or, or hearing that news the night that it happened. Sorry, it, it was the following morning, actually. My efforts became a lot more urgent and it, I was able to fly to Mazari Sharif, which is another city in the north, with a letter from the Ministry of Defence that I was to hand the uh, core headquarters up there, the ANA, Afghan National Army uh, core headquarters in Mazar. From where, in theory, I was going to be able to um, hitch a ride on a on an ANA helicopter to Kunduz. It took about two days waiting on a um, helicopter at a helicopter landing zone at the uh, core headquarters in Mazar before a helicopter which you know supposedly had a little bit of room for me, another journalist, and the uh, local photographer who we were working with who was going to be interpreting for us and. We we um, jumped on the. We didn't ask any questions. We were just so desperate to get there at the stage. We jumped on the the, the back um, loading ramp, and we could barely squeeze in. the The, the helicopter was um, it was one of these old Russian helicopters, uh, Russian transport helicopters, and um, yeah, we could barely get on. It was full of boxes of apples as well as um, coffins with dead bodies in them. Uh, dead bodies of uh, Afghan soldiers that were being transported to their home home provinces. So we ended up, um, we, the, the, the tail ramp went up and the pilot tried to take off. And, you know, a minute later, we, we got yelled at from one of the door gunners that we were too heavy. And he started um, like underarming apples to us so we could eat the apples and in theory, shed some of the weight in the helicopter <laughs> which we thought was pretty funny but um wow. uh anyway we ended we, we ended up um we ended up taking off and i was sitting on one of those these coffins like there was no there was nowhere else to sit um we landed in kunduz half an hour later and we had we had our you know official embed papers stamped by the ministry of defense and but um from this this uh Brigade headquarters in Kunduz, where the the mission to retake Kunduz city city was being staged from. No one wanted to take us into Kunduz city. No one wanted the responsibility of you know a couple of foreign journalists on their hands. So um, we spent five days, six days, just tearing our hair out, um, you know, trying to just trying to get out of the base. And it wasn't until that uh, the seventh day, just probably or seven days after the hospital had been attacked, that um, we basically hitched a ride with a um, 
an Afghan army major who who spoke some Russian, as did the as did my journalist colleague, um, and they sort of hit it off. And and we asked him where he was going. He said, "We're you know they were going on a mission to try and outflank a, a small group of Taliban on the edge of town." He, and we we asked him, "Can we jump in?" And we we happened to have all our kit with us at the time, so he literally just jumped in the back of his truck, and you know did, didn't bother asking our public affairs officer who had responsibility for us. <laughs> And so we ended up spending the day with this um, with this major and his um, and a couple of platoons of A and A as they were sort of rounding up um, a few uh, a few last talibs on the edge of town. And then um, towards the end of the day, I started speaking to people at MSF Medicine Sans Frontieres in in Kabul about getting to the hospital because it was the closest I'd been to it at that point. And between them and I, we were able to arrange a, a driver to come and pick me up. And I, so I basically absconded from the, the, the major. Actually, I didn't. He, he, he said I was free to go and um, jumped in with this driver who drove me to the hospital through the, through the city, which was still, I mean, he, he knew the city, so he knew where to drive, but there was still fighting going on in the city. And, and dropped me off at the door at the hospital. Um, and I spent the next about two hours in the hospital just basically documenting, you know, as, as forensically as I could, as comprehensively as I could, and as uncreatively as I, as I could um, what I saw because no one had been in the hospital yet. No one knew what had happened. And even a week later, there were still probably still a, at least a dozen dead bodies in there that had not been removed. And it wasn't until um, I'd been there for you know, probably two hours and was starting to get worried about the time. It was starting to get dark outside and I really didn't want to be caught in the city after dark. And um, that, that I got into the least damaged part of the hospital, which was the, a couple of operating theatres. And I sort of stuck my head in one, took a couple of quick photos and then stuck my head in another. And it was pretty dark in there. And when my, my eyes adjusted, I, I saw this man lying on the the table and I you know, spent a couple of minutes in there sort of photographing from every angle and um, and then I got out and I ended up getting on a flight back to Kabul the following day that the, the ANA were all too happy to, to put us on and I actually went back to MSF that night um, where there were a bunch of MSF staff who'd flown in from uh, Belgium where their headquarters is in the in the aftermath of this attack and to, to show them the photos basically that I'd taken. So it was a pretty heavy, heavy night, um, you know, showing sort of unrecognisable bodies, some of whom were probably um, staff, MSF staff members and as, as well as patients and so on. And then uh, following that, I ended up um, tracking down with the help of MSF, the, the family, or working out, first of all, who the, the man on the table was and then tracking down his family and, and finding out about what had led up to the point where he'd, he'd ultimately been killed on on the table, and I'm I'm still in um, in touch with the family actually um, every now and then to this day. Yeah, it's an absolutely powerful image, and I think the story behind it as well. And again, I'll, I'll put the link in for the story as well. Uh, I find it I find it interesting that you then try and go and find the story out. What motivates you to do that, rather than just you know taking a a, a photo and Hey, here's the results. What 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 makes you, what drives you to reach out and find out the story behind the person in your frame? I think. Look, um, 
you know, we so often are confronted with photos of of, of dead bodies in um, in foreign countries. In you know, whether uh, we're a, a reader or a viewer in Australia or the US or uh, Europe or wherever it is, and we have no connection to the the lives of the people in those photos. And you know, I, I'm I'm guilty of of contributing to that dynamic as well. But in this case, I guess um, there was there was more reason to dig deeper and and find out what had happened to this guy, um, what uh, what had led up to uh, him being in the hospital, being operated on there, um, you know, because at the time there were a lot of uh, accusations and counter-accusations flying around about whether those um, in the hospital were Taliban fighters or whether they were, you know, innocent civilians or staff members. So that was partly the reason for my looking into it, to, to try and verify who this guy was because he was, I'm, I'm sorry to say, one of the few... Uh, or if, if not the only uh, body that remained when I was there that was still somewhat recognisable. All, all the others had been, you know, basically incinerated, whereas uh, Bainazar was his name, his, his body was still largely intact. And, and so it was, it was possible to uh, identify him by, both by the injuries that he was being treated for on the operating table and by, by his appearance. Um, and also by where he was located in the hospital at the time of his death. Mm. And I think the important part here is that as you then uncover the story and and you know you find out that he's a you know he's a father. I think he's got uh, or had three children. He's a husband. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think we can draw. You know, yeah, okay. We can. It's very easy to say it's war. Accidents happen. You know, c'est la vie. That's what happened. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But we and, and and I speak from my personal experience. I mean, I was, I was you know a, a child of the Bosnian War, and my members of my family died in dubious circumstances, and so on. We don't we tend to forget the emotion that ignites within people. They don't care if it's an accident or not. They care that their husband, their father, has now been killed by you know these uh, foreign forces. Whether they're fighting a good fight or not, that becomes irrelevant. Uh, it's very easy to understand why people very quickly can turn against what some might argue are, are, are good motives. Others will say the motives themselves were corrupt. Again, that's not the point and certainly not a point I'm trying to make. Uh, but bottom line is that once people die, once people lose family members, it's very easy for them to turn against those who've perpetrated those quote-unquote accidents. Mm-hmm. Is this what... Uh, yeah, it really is. Yeah, yeah. Uh, is this then what, or, or maybe the, the question I want to ask is, how do you then transition from being a photojournalist who takes these rather powerful images that, you know, were seen around the world and have been recognised for the power they hold? How did you turn then into now an author and somebody, and also an author who's again with some uh, some 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 genuine credibility and some accolades? Uh, and I've read your work as well, and I, I, I mean, I, I, you know, it was, it was it's really really powerful stuff, uh, and broadly recognised uh, for being quite intuitive journalism. How did you then kind of go from a photojournalist to now, arguably, also an a writer? Um, well, coincidentally, 
that transition partly happened um, around that photograph, purely out of necessity because ha having been alone when I took that photograph without a, a writer colleague, as I often would be, I, uh, I, I suppose I saw the necessity of uh, writing around that photograph and you know, adding context, as we were talking about before, to that photograph. And um, I guess you know, that responsibility fell to me just because I, I, was, um, I was there and, and I, I had some investment in the, in the story. And uh, for the first time, or for one of the first times, I, I didn't feel like sort of handing that off to someone else, you know, someone who might have been more recognised as, as a photographer. And I owe, to a large extent, my credit for, for being given the opportunity to write that to the editor I worked with at the time, who, with whom I'd, I'd worked on a couple of things previously, but, but this was certainly by far the, the most important story that we'd worked on together. And she was, she was very uh, patient with me. She knew I didn't have a lot of writing experience, but she didn't. She didn't, uh, you know, I would send her a draft and she, she would make me rewrite the bits she, she didn't like. She wouldn't re rewrite them for me. She'd make mm. me do it. And it was um, painful at the time. But, um, you know, I, I, I learned some really valuable lessons through that, um, through that story um, and through other stories we've worked on subsequently. And from then on, I started to see the value in in writing, you know, what were in many ways just extended captions for my stories, or mm. um, or fleshing out the context around the the photos that I was taking. I'd already, I mean, to to go back a, another step, I, I I guess I would say that um, my 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 writing started kind of informally through Instagram, where I would have to um, provide context to the photos I was taking. And, you know, I started seeing that as a way to, to practice my writing. And, um, and it, it, it went from there to the point where today, as you mentioned, I'm focusing, I'm actually focusing more on writing than I am on photography. So the, the writing is coming first now and the, and the, the photographs are supplementing the writing, whereas previously it, it was happening in reverse. And I suppose... I see that as a, you know, the result of wanting to illustrate stories in a way that um, uh, photos have their limits. Whereas you can, I've, I've found that I've been able to describe stories and uh, situations and historical events in more detail through text where photos are able to illustrate an aspect of that story or to, you know, even, you know, like decorate in a purely design design sense for a, you know in the, the the way a story is laid out on the internet or in a magazine and and I've I've I like that combination actually um, and I like the I, I, I like the format of a you know, a long detailed investigative style uh, piece of journalism interwoven with with photos that are that are relevant to it. And I guess it makes you rather unique in that sense because you can't, you're now the full package. You do the writing and the image as well. And I think, you know, judging by the two 
celebrated pieces, you know, the one that uh, your first one that came out about a CIA-led Afghan militia that was uh, responsible for uh, several massacres in 2019, and then the one that came out in April uh, with the monthly, the worst form of defence, rev- uh, new revelations of Australian war crimes in Afghanistan. I guess the the this story you're also telling is uh, the story that we, the West, don't want to see. We don't want to confront uh, in many ways, would that be accurate? I think so. Yeah, I mean, it. it, it I, I suppose my focus as a, you know, a quote unquote journalist is are, are the kinds of stories that uh, people don't want us to hear, or that you know, the, the powers that be don't want us to hear, or the perpetrators don't want us to hear. And you know, I'm certainly not the first journalist to. Um, to uh, want to you know focus on on those kinds of stories, but it, it, they seem, um, I mean, it's it's instinctive for me um, at this point to to look at those, and yeah, I, I think it it just follows on from. I guess it's another way of uh, of um, looking at the war from the perspectives of the victims, which is I, I guess what my um, focus has been since I since I came here, since the those prosecuting the war, at least on the the Afghan government international side, um, have become less available uh, for for viewing for viewing the war. So it, you know, it seems it it always occurred to me that uh, viewing it and and telling stories from the perspective of the victims has been a an, an obvious way to sort of fill that fill that gap and and it's um it's it's such a huge gap now because there are so few journalists here since the the foreign forces have gone and since uh news outlets are so reluctant to take the responsibility for for journalists working in in conflict zones um strangely enough i think it's it's for a um often for a very particular reason that being that there is no longer the guarantee of um, helicopter evacuation. Um, you know, if anything was to, if you're injured or or worse uh, in a conflict uh, situation. Whereas in the past, that when you signed up for an embed with the American forces, you were guaranteed to be treated as a as a soldier if you were if you were injured or you know you were basically with the the unit you were with, and and they were going to uh, treat you as one of their own. Um, while you're with them, so since that element has been is no longer available, it, it's much harder for uh, big publications to take on that responsibility. Yeah, of course, and, and I guess more broadly speaking, I think your job is one that's quite dangerous. I mean, just explaining that circumstances to get that shot in the hospital is is quite incredible, and something that I don't think we give enough credit to because it's it's quite it's obviously a very dangerous place not least because there's a war, but, you know, you as a journalist also have a certain value, I guess, you know, for, you know, for, for various motivations uh, that people can exploit. And, 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 you know, just by the example that you just said now, you, you're there doing the job now without any guarantee of uh, getting any uh, first rate healthcare that we would expect, you know, that you would certainly get in Australia. How do you deal with that? I mean, because that's a that's a that's a pretty big burden to carry as well. I mean, it is you know, and and 
many of your, um, I'd imagine you've lost uh, colleagues yourself. Uh, I've certainly spoken to in a previous episode to a, uh, a guy from Sarajevo who started a uh, project uh, called the Sniper Alley where he reaches, reached out to photojournalists who went to Sarajevo and took photographs during the war, mainly to find images of his own family and the funeral of his brother who was mm. killed by a sniper. Uh, and that, that's what motivated him. But he then through that uh, opened up an entire avenue of reaching out and understanding the hugely dangerous life of being a war correspondent or photojournalist in a conflict zone or whatever term we use. How do you, how do you view that risk? Uh, good, good question. Uh, I, I probably view it a little bit differently now to when I did or to how I did you know, five years ago, six years ago in Kunduz, for example. And I think that's partly to do with the, the way I feel about the, or the, my lack of optimism for the, the future here in Afghanistan. Um, I think five or six years ago, I still felt a degree of hope for uh, a better future here and that, um, that there was a, a reason that people were fighting for and that they believed in. Whereas now it seems to be, at least on the, on the government side, they're really just fighting for survival at this point. And, and I, I mean, from my perspective, the, the writing is on the wall that, um, you know, some form of Taliban uh, takeover, whether it's um, militarily or politically or, you know, some kind of political settlement, I, I, I find it hard to envisage Afghanistan in, you know, five years' time without um, the Taliban having a, you know, serious degree of control in the country. And I think the, the fighting at the moment with that kind of inevitability just seems so futile to me that, I, that I've definitely recalibrated my, um, my tolerance for risk. So um, I, but, you know, to, to mitigate it, I, I guess um, in the absence of options in the event that you know something did happen to me i try to mitigate them happening in the first place um, by you know trusting those with whom i'm working knowing where i'm going not whether knowing um, what the the dynamics are in the place i'm traveling to you know down to the down to the little things like um knowing how best to blend in in the specific place where i'm going you know uh, like knowing literally like what 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 hat to wear in one place as opposed to another, uh, what, what style of local clothes, what type of shoes, um, you know, re really little things that could, you know, potentially make a difference uh, between, you know, being recognised as a foreigner somewhere where I wouldn't want to be. And, and also um, with, you know, the people I'm in contact with and um, uh, I, guess, I guess a lot of it comes down to trust and, in the eight years I've been here, I've, I've been fortunate enough to work with people who, who I have been able to trust and whose, whose trust has got me a long way. Mm. And how do you deal with the, and, and, and I don't know if this is too personal a question, but one of the things that strikes me is that you're taking images of some of the worst 
things that we do to each other as the human species. And these are the images that generally will make the headlines because they scare us into realizing how horrible we are to each other. But I'd imagine it would have to have an impact on you as well, seeing death and carnage and destruction. You know, what's that impact been on you? How, how do you deal with it? Uh, so far, it hasn't been any, it hasn't had an impact that's been any more than short term. Like, uh, you know, I've, I've had a couple of, I've seen a couple of things where that have kept me awake for a couple of days, but which have left my, you know, consciousness to an extent that, I've been able to to carry on as normal and not have them impact me on a on a day to day basis and, and not in a disruptive way. You know, obviously there's things that I carry with me and will always carry with me and will have an impact on my view of the world, but but they haven't at this point had a an overly disruptive impact. And of course, I'm sure a lot of your listeners and a lot of a lot of people who've had experience in in conflict zones will will warn that that doesn't mean they won't rear you know these these events won't rear their heads um in my in my consciousness in years to come but um i suppose um you know we we live in a an age where we're a lot more aware of of traumatic you know the the impact of traumatic events and mental health and so on and i'm i'm pretty aware of all that stuff and i and i i do keep a close eye on my own mental health and but again you know there's there's only so much you can do if uh, if the day comes where all that stuff does make an appearance and and wants to wants to um screw with your head there's um i I guess it's something you you have to manage rather than cure and um i mean i've had my experiences with mental health difficulties in the past completely unrelated to afghanistan and through that i've learnt some you know mechanisms to to deal with them and to 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 manage uh, manage it and to i guess um prevent it or to recognize it when it's um making an appearance or 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 or, um or threatening to make an appearance and you know for for that reason i you know I'm, i'm very deliberate about you know doing very simple things like trying to exercise every day and eat healthily and, you know, not, not drink too much and, and all these kinds of things that um, I guess decrease the, the likelihood that these things will have adverse impacts. Mm-hmm. Andrew, I'm conscious of the time and I know we've gone past the, uh, the kind of agreed hour, uh, but <laughs> yeah, uh, maybe just a, just a couple of questions to close off on. Uh, and what's, this is one that we touched on before we started recording. Uh, and it kind of leads on from what you're saying now about your your life there now, the risk and also the kind of how you manage uh, risk. But I guess one of the things that's making your life harder now is the fact that Australia has not only decided to withdraw its troops from Afghanistan along with, you know, the US uh, after Biden's decision, uh, we've also now closed our embassy in Kabul. Firstly, how do people feel about that uh, more broadly, both foreigners as well as um, locals, uh, and then how does that impact on you and other Australians that are still left in Kabul? Uh, how it impacts on Afghans? I mean, you know, without wanting to speak for all Afghans, I think it's it's been viewed um, pretty critically. I think it, you know it sends a pretty bad message um, with regard to our country's diplomatic uh, 
support to to Afghanistan, which you know we're supposedly you know right behind. It it, it just doesn't um, symbolically. It's it's a pretty it's a pretty dismal display, and I think um, a lot of Afghans are worried that it will it, it will kick off a you know mass exodus of other embassies that that hasn't um, that hasn't come to pass yet. I'm happy to say, but um, you know it certainly makes us stand out in the crowd. And then you know that obviously that there's the issue of the, the staff from the embassy who appear to have been you know left high and dry. I know there's a lot of um, advocates pushing really hard to help them get uh, resettled in Australia. And you know, as is the case for uh, in, for the US and Brits and, and every other coalition country um, who have been pressured um, to to assist the, those who assisted both military and, and diplomatic missions here. In turn, uh, for the um, for Australian citizens like me, I mean, look, the the Australian embassy here, I, I've always had a sort of passing relationship with them and and you know to different extents through the years i i wouldn't ever i wouldn't say that i ever sort of relied on them or felt that i could rely on them in the event of some catastrophe in in afghanistan they were usually pretty um <laughs> pretty reluctant to provide information when you know when they had or you know if they had information that, that was pertinent to Australian citizens, they would usually send out these sort of boilerplate generic emails that told us that the Australian embassy you know, didn't advise us uh, not to come to Afghanistan. And if we, if we were here, then we should, you know, leave at the earliest convenience, yada, yada. But um, on the other hand, I, I, I mean, personally, I rely on the Australian embassy for some documents that I need to get my visa which I presume I won't be able to get from them in the future. And moreover, I, um, I mean, I, I found it's pretty rude, to be honest, that um, we, me and the you know, handful of other Australians here learnt about the embassy closing through the media. We, we didn't, uh, I didn't get any notification before or after from the embassy or from DFAPs. Maybe I've been scrubbed from their mailing list after my, my story in the monthly, which, which was pretty critical of, of the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. But um, yeah, I, I found that pretty disappointing, I, I must admit. You know, I, I had um, I had people there that I sort of knew more personally than, than professionally. And I, yeah, I found it pretty disappointing that um, we didn't you know, get a bit of a heads up. I, you know, I think that if a, um, the consular section of a foreign embassy is not there to, uh, I mean, if the, if, if the job of a, um, if one aspect of a consular section of a foreign embassy isn't to notify citizens when it's closing, what is, what is it? So yeah, it was, it was a pretty disappointing um, little period, I'd, I'd say. Yeah. Yeah. No, and and I think you you know you you make the point that trying to get at least the people that have supported both the military and the diplomatic mission to try and resell them in Australia, that's certainly getting a lot more attention uh, in the media back here. Um, so we'll see how that uh, how that unfolds. Well, maybe the last question that I want to finish on, you made the point that you're, you're not very hopeful about the future of Afghanistan. 
what's the future of Afghanistan look like in your view? And do you see yourself there much longer or are you going to explore other options? The future I find pretty hard to envisage without either escalated violence leading to some kind of um, Taliban takeover or a or to, uh, a Taliban takeover that is the result of some sort of political settlement, which which I find pretty unlikely, uh, an unlikely scenario. So I, I just um, I can't see a short to near term future that doesn't involve uh, an escalation in violence, with with the ultimate outcome being the Taliban retaining the power that they that they once had. Um, I just um, I feel like all the momentum is in their favour. The departure of the Americans is going to lift that thumb that they had placed on the Afghan government's side of the scale. And I mean, even with that, in the past five years, it's been the Taliban who've been, you know, taking territory slowly but surely to the point that today they they control. I think you know more than half of the geographic territory, which doesn't necessarily mean they control half the population, and, and that's not the case. But I think, um, yeah, they have the, the momentum, the morale, and the and the will, which is increasingly devoid in, in the government government ranks. And um, I just I feel very sorry for the uh, Afghan security forces at the moment who are, in many cases, maintaining these little outposts which are completely surrounded by the Taliban simply so the central government can claim that they still uh, maintain some control in these in these rural districts in reality all these soldiers on these in these outposts are doing are uh, trying to survive they're not providing any services they are not uh, they don't have any uh, population under their under their control they are literally there to to plant a flag uh, on the map to um, suggest that the government has a bit of control there, and and yeah, they either a friend of mine who who recently um, flew into one of these outposts and the government helicopter said um, the the helicopter Afghan helicopter pilots who were ferrying in um, you know ammunition and food from time to time, uh, all they were doing was delivering food and taking out bodies. Um, so it's, I mean, it's a, it's a pretty dire state of affairs. Um, and you've got the, the Taliban encircling more and more provincial capitals, certainly more and more uh, district capitals. And um, I think since the 1st of May, which was the date by which the Americans had initially agreed to withdraw by, there's been about uh, 10 district centres that have fallen to the Taliban. So it's, it just seems like the yeah that momentum, as I said before, is is just all in the Taliban's favour. That's uh, yeah, not a very optimistic prognosis, but I'm afraid it's uh, mm. one from the ground. So will you stick mm. around, or what do you what's what are you thinking? I mean, is it going to be safe for you to stick around for much longer? Um, look, I, don't, I mean, I don't think Kabul's going to fall overnight or anything. It's it's tricky though. I mean, it depends. Um, 
it depends a lot on whether how long the airport can stay open. I think I think that's that's a canary in the coal mine moment for a lot of um, a lot of foreigners. I don't think Kabul would be a place that any foreigners would really want to be if the Taliban did take over. Certainly, in the days that that happened, I imagine there'd be a lot of um, appetite for revenge and reprisals, and I don't think. Um, They'd be um, they'd be they'd be interested in sort of you know checking your um, your credentials and um, who you've worked for and you know the kinds of stories or how impartial you've been in your reporting um, before before dealing with you. So, um, but yeah, look, I think I think that's probably a, a way off. And look, either way, although I'd like to start spending more time outside of Afghanistan, I, I can't imagine I'll ever leave here for good. Um, certainly a place that um, has gotten under my skin and has been um, been hard for me to leave and it will be um, it will be a, a hard moment when that that day does come although it'll be somewhat dampened by the fact that I know that I'll, I'll probably always come back good man Andrew and like I said, I know we've gone way over our great time but uh, yeah your story is just fascinating and I think Again, there is so much more we could talk about, but I take my hat off to you for what you do. I think what you and your colleagues do, uh, putting your lives on the line to capture moments and write stories about things that would other, otherwise never see in the light of day, I think it's very honourable and we don't give it enough credit, I think. We often just embrace the dominant narrative because it's easier uh, and I think it's people like you who burst that illusion of simplicity through the images and stories that you've write. And I congratulate you on that. And, and uh, I wish you all the best, mate, and stay safe and hope to chat to you again in the future. Thanks a lot, Naz. Look forward to it. Thanks for joining us for another episode of The Voices of War. You can access all episodes on www.thevoicesofwar.com or by subscribing wherever you get your favourite podcasts. And while you're there, please give us a review as we'd love to hear what you think. If you'd like to recommend a guest for the show, you can reach me on info at thevoicesofwar.com.